0: We are continuing on in this current series that we've been on the last number of weeks. And uh, we've got a couple more to go. And in the series, we're looking at the seven different miracles that John um, records. Uh, He calls them signs that Jesus performed. Signs that help kind of reveal who Jesus is, give us a more full picture, and what that means for then and for now. And uh, last week we looked at the feeding of the multitude, some 15 to 20,000 people, and that remember that kid with the lunchbox and God or G- Jesus in that moment takes that food that's offered and he gives thanks for it and then they pass it out and it just continues to multiply until everyone had as much as they wanted. They were all fed. So that was an amazing miracle. And we've been connecting this to various aspects of the space program. And right now, hopefully in the next month, they're preparing to send another rocket to the moon, with no humans on it this time, but potentially a, a little satellite, and then eventually to send humans back to the moon. The word astronaut comes from two words, and it you could literally say it means sailor of the stars. That's kind of what that word means. And We kind of connect with that imagery a lot. I know we have a lot of water in our area, so we have lots of people that, you know, go out on boats. And some some of you might even have some particular boating skills or, in Chris's case, maybe some fishing skills. I know you like to go out and catch fish. So there are lots and lots of boats. There's lots and lots of potential sailors. And it all takes a little bit of training, especially if you don't want to end up in the water. But at the very start of the space program, there were only a few of these sailors of the stars selected to carry out that mission to put humans on the surface of the moon. And since it was the first time for doing this in human history, just about every step was planned out in advance. Every, they ran tests. They trained for things. They simulated things over and over again. They wanted to turn these few human beings into true sailors of the stars. So they did things like put them in centrifuges and spun them around real fast to test G-forces. Some of the astronauts say that when they did it the first time, they they kind of passed out a little bit because they weren't used to it. But over time, they got accustomed to those high G-forces. They sent them up in giant planes that would take off in a giant arc. You can do this as a tourist now. And at the very top of the arc, you could have about 25 seconds of simulated weightlessness. And so they practiced what weightlessness could feel like. And even more interesting than that, they actually weren't sure, would you be able to eat in space? Could you eat? Could you swallow? So they had them do quick little experiments at the top of these arcs, when they were on the plane, floating a little bit, they had them quick eat something and try to swallow. And lo and behold, guess what? You can eat, and you can swallow, thankfully. This was one of the things they didn't know until they tried it. And we've already talked about some of the underwater tests that they made them do to simulate what it felt like to move in space. All of it was to prepare that group of people for a mission that would have many unknowns. And in fact, one of those three gentlemen that made it to the moon, when just before he was asked what he thought about the mission, and he said that he gave it about a 60% chance of success. So that means that that 40%, he was aware that he could give his life, potentially, for this mission. Yet for every step that was planned and simulated to get them to and from the moon, One of the sad things is that there was almost no preparation for what it would be like if they experienced success and then had to come back to Earth. What would their life be like when they returned back to Earth? Some of the astronauts actually had to learn the hard way that the most dangerous part of the mission was once they returned. Suddenly everyone knew who they were, but they had no one looking over their shoulder, no one telling them how to navigate their newfound celebrity, and even how to walk through life. A bunch of the astronauts ended up in broken relationships or turned to substances or other avenues. Buzz Aldrin, one of those three that uh, made it to the moon, he's actually, one of his, I guess one of his uh, strengths was that he's honest almost too honest, you know, one of those people that just kind of openly kind of like spurts all the honesty out of their head in a moment. And he was one who struggled a lot with what to do when he got back to Earth. He didn't know. He wasn't prepared for how to live life where everybody knew who you were. And you couldn't go anywhere without people wanting a piece of you. He remarked that there was a simulator. NASA had a simulator for every aspect of the mission, But there was no simulator whatsoever to help them deal with both the success and storms of life back on planet Earth. And I've heard similar things from soldiers that come back. Trained for the mission to the perfect degree, and yet almost no training in how to live life back on Earth. This week we're in week five of our series, and thankfully in Jesus Christ we have one who we follow and learn from. He wasn't just preparing his disciples for a mission and then it would be over. He was preparing them for a time where he wouldn't be there to be able to hold their hands and show them directly exactly all the steps that they were supposed to take. He worked to open eyes to help people to see as he did, helping his disciples to see that people were always an ongoing Mission, A mission that never ends. And so they would need preparation for those times where they were successful in carrying out God's mission and those times where they really struggled to follow God and carry out his will. We looked at this last week in that feeding miracle where Jesus was testing his disciples and trying to open their eyes of faith to be able to trust him more and more. Jesus knew that a renewed and strengthened faith faith was critical for every follower of Jesus if we are to be able to stand in the face of those unknown storms and pressures. And if we are also able to stand in those moments where we experience success and we're not quite sure what to do at that point. Jesus' closest followers got to experience it all with him in just a few short years. One of the interesting things is that right after that previous miracle, the crowd got really excited. They had all been fed, and they were aware of this miraculous happening. And in fact, they thought or started to believe that Jesus might be this prophet that the Old Testament had talked about, all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. And so they were getting excited. Look at verse 15 in chapter 6. It says that Jesus took notice of this. And knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, they were like, you are going to be our king! You are going to not only save us, but you are going to rescue us from these pesky Romans. You are going to free us. What does Jesus do? He withdraws again to a mountain by himself. Jesus knew at that moment When the crowd was getting excited, and you know what happens when crowds get really excited and agitated and animated. Things can happen that you don't intend. And for Jesus, he knew that it was not his time yet to fully reveal all that God had planned. He knew that the acts of power and the fervor of the crowd would actually begin to cloud the vision of his disciples. You see the disciples by this point had already tasted the sweet side of success, the sweet side of walking with Jesus. He had actually empowered them already to perform miracles in his name, to cast out evil spirits in his name. They got to get it. they had that little taste of what was possible. And when you have a little taste of what's possible, sometimes it goes to your head. Success can be like that. Mountaintop moments or amazing answers to prayer can either motivate us to keep walking with God in faith, or we can give in that allure of that power or that prestige that sometimes comes with it. And before we know it, we start to think, wow, isn't God lucky that He has me? Look what I am able to do. Thank you, God. I'm glad that I can be on your team. We start to think that we're indispensable and that God actually needs us in the first place. Jesus knew that his disciples were in just such a danger, which is why just as this 20,000 people crowd, 20,000 people strong, just as they were getting fired up, he knew that what was most necessary was that they needed to leave. This is one of those miracles that shows up a couple other times. It also shows up in Matthew and in Mark. In those two instances, Jesus actually tells his disciples, he's like, guess what? We've had this amazing moment. Now get in the boat. Head on over to the other side. I'll catch up with you later. We're getting out of here. Get in the boat. You're leaving. I'll meet up with you. I'm sure that this probably confused those disciples. They weren't sure what Jesus was doing here. But as we know, they come to learn eventually that Jesus often does the unexpected. He performs a miracle, and then he says, we're not sticking around, we're moving on. So let's read a few verses of this particular miracle or sign in John 6, starting in verse 16. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Capernaum was that town that was kind of their home base for a lot of this uh, time of ministry. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. When you think of this dark sea, remember, no lights. Maybe there were a few campfires around the lake. But other than that, there's no, there's no light pollution. So when it says it's dark, it's dark. Like real dark. The kind of dark that we never get to experience in our area. There's always light somewhere around for us. It says in verse 18, A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. In the Sea of Galilee, the winds would come whipping out of the hills, and this sea is only like five or six miles across. So it's, it's a large lake, but it's not super massive. And you can get anywhere from five to six foot waves on this lake. They actually have white caps that will form. And you don't think that that's very big in comparison to like, you know, the big waves if we go to the ocean. But if you're in a small little rowboat or a dinghy, five to six foot waves is nothing to sneeze at. In fact, it can be pretty scary and hairy in those moments. When the disciples had rowed about three or four miles, so they're out in the middle of this lake, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Another way of saying this is, I am. What's that name of God that we read about in the Old Testament where God says, I am. That's my name. Jesus is using that same phrase here. It is I. Don't be afraid. This is the most repeated command of Jesus in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. I don't know how that's possible. That's probably the second half of the miracle. But it says immediately. So whenever John uses that word, that's what it means immediately. I don't know how that's possible, but it is. And that is the fifth sign. Matthew and Mark let us know that Jesus had actually told the disciples to get in the boat. And what was he going to do in that time that they jump in the boat and go over to the other side of the lake? He was going to pray. Let me read Matthew 14 for us. Matthew 14, 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd when he sent them home. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to what? To pray. To pray. Mark basically says almost the same words. Mark 6 45. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to what? To pray. Jesus knew that his closest followers, the ones who knew him the best by this point, still were not strong enough. They weren't strong enough yet to face the crowds. They weren't yet strong enough to be able to overcome the the fervor of the crowds, to be able to stand up to them and say, no, that we're not actually going to give you everything that you think you want. We're giving you what you need in this moment. One author said it like this, Jesus knew that there was more danger in the favor of the crowd than in the fury of the storm. He knew that if he was simply here to please the people, He would fail in his mission to offer real hope for all people. So he gets them out of there. Yeah, this was written by, I, I don't have the author's name, I just have the quote. He knew that there was more danger in the favor of the crowd than in the fury of the storm. This makes sense when we think of what happens next now normally we have a problem with disobedience we're all good at that yes i see nodding yes you can we we agree but here what happens comes from obedience they actually have a problem with obedience because the disciples actually find themselves in a storm that jesus knew would come What does this mean? It means Jesus sent them on into this particular storm. This is a painting that someone did of what they imagined that storm was like on a tiny little boat. Just as Jesus knew what he was going to do in feeding the crowd, in this moment he is connected to the Father as he prays. And so he knows what will happen and what he'll do here as well. Now, for you and me, it's difficult to think of the idea that we follow a God who sends us on paths that can lead to storms. I don't like thinking about that. It might be tempting for us to think that every storm we face is a result of the evil one. Or because I did something stupid. And yes, that happens too. To be clear, the devil does do stuff and you and I do act stupidly more often than we'd like to admit. Some of our storms are self-inflicted. This is a different kind of storm. This is not a storm brought on by the devil and it's not a storm that the disciples faced because they had done something terribly wrong. In fact, this is a storm they went into. Because they did something right. They obeyed the command of the Lord to get in the boat and go on ahead without him. Even if they didn't understand his reasoning. Imagine that moment. It's pitch dark. The fury of the wind and the waves rising. And it should grab our attention that some of these guys are professionals. Professionals. Professional fishermen. So the fact that they are terrified tells you something. If you are on a boat and the captain of the boat is terrified, you should probably be terrified as well. They're all terrified. They think, this might be the end. It's too far to turn back now. We are in the middle of the lake. Which is why when John says, immediately that boat returned at the end of the sign... It makes it even more amazing. Three miles, just like that. It must have been a terrible feeling for this group of people out on this boat in the dark. What do we do now? Wondering where Jesus was in all of this. And where is Jesus? He's up on the hillside praying. It actually says in some of the other Gospels that Jesus did see them. He was well aware of what was going on. He could see them from where he was, seeing them as exactly where he needed them to be. Why did Jesus want them out in the middle of this lake in the midst of a storm? He knew that they needed more development. He knew that they were not strong enough. He knew that they needed more preparation if they were going to be able to withstand the bigger storms that would come after he was gone, after he had returned back to heaven. He wanted them to be able to handle it. Another test. Exactly. In fact, this whole section of miracles, this whole long chapter, and even the chapter before, is kind of one test after another. He's really training them up for the moment when he won't be there anymore. The ironic thing is that this is perhaps the second time the disciples have been in a boat at this point, And the second storm that they've been in. And the last time they were in a storm, Jesus was in the boat with them, and they still got scared. And they still got terrified. So now it's almost like this is the level two test. Because now they're in the boat. They knew what Jesus had done before. They knew all of the things that Jesus had been engaged in, all these acts of power, and now he's saying, okay, now I'm not going to be physically with you. Let's see what happens now. And the same thing. They get terrified. In fact, they think when he comes to them that he's a ghost. God prepares us to do his work through us. Have you ever seen the... The road that they have when they take the big rockets from the assembly building to the launch pad. They have this massive, it's not even called a road, it's actually called the crawler way. And that crawler that they put, that big machine that they put the rocket on, it actually weighs like something like six million pounds. It's so heavy with the rocket on it, or the space shuttle back in the space shuttle days, that it would crush any normal road. Asphalt would not work. So do you know what they actually use? They actually use river rocks from Alabama. Rocks that have been smoothed over time by water. And they put this very thick layer down. And these river rocks are smooth enough that they almost act like ball bearings for this massive vehicle to go. And they only have to replace it about every 10 years and replace the rocks. Most of these rocks are actually, ironically, able to withstand the immense pressure of all that weight. There's something about this particular kind of stone that it withstands pressure and time and water and all these forces. So they take these rocks from this river in Alabama and they bring them to Florida and they lay them out on the road. And these particular rocks are, I don't know if they're special rocks or whatever, but for some reason, because they've been in the river for so long, they just hold up. They've weathered a bit. They're able to withstand the pressure that they're put under. That is a 4.2-mile road of rocks. And if those rocks hadn't been subjected to the constant flow of water that shaped and refined them, Then they couldn't be used. If they were sharp rocks, they wouldn't roll enough for the big crawler to move efficiently. They would simply crush into dust as that weight pressed down. Jesus sent his disciples forward knowing they were walking into a storm or rowing into a storm. He had seen how big their eyes got when the crowd started chanting, wanting to make Jesus king. He knew what they experienced when they were able to do acts of power in Jesus' name. And he knew that this was going to become a grave temptation for them. It wasn't yet time. He knew the feelings that would start to grow in their heart if they listened to the crowds too much. And if it wasn't yet Jesus' time, then it for sure wasn't their time. Instead, what time was it? It was time to send you into a storm. You needed to prepare them even more. For you and me, the problem of obedience is that it means that we may be sent into storms that we can't anticipate. We're always in storms of our own making, but there are other storms that come at us as well. And often those storms are meant to prepare us so that God can do his work through us. For the disciples, there's a danger in forgetfulness. Because the moment those wind and waves came, what happened? They forgot who Jesus was. They forgot what Jesus had done for them and with them. And in their forgetfulness, they are actually the perfect people for us to look at this morning because we do the same thing. They witnessed all the previous signs. They had picked up all those leftovers. How many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. So each disciple had this massive basket of leftovers, that sign of God's abundant provision. And then what does Jesus say? He says, get in the boat, go on over to the other side. So they get in the boat, and if you're in a boat, and you have to start rowing, you're going to put that basket of leftovers down at your feet, and you're going to start rowing. And they were wondering where Jesus was, and in that moment, all they had to do was look down, and they would have been reminded of where Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And yet they forgot. And we do the same thing. Looking at the waves, they couldn't see the answer at their feet. That the presence of Jesus is already with us. Things happen fast when we forget what Jesus has done for us, or done in the previous season of our lives, or the lives of our community. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, he tells us why all of this happened. And it's because of this. The disciples we completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I forgot about this verse until I reread it this past week. That they were sent into a storm because they didn't know what they had experienced just before. And Jesus needed to reinforce and teach them again. Just like those lessons that sometimes we need repeated over and over and over again. It's kind of nice to know that the disciples are not so different from you and I. They need those repeats as well. Instead of forgetfulness, we are called to remember. Remember that God always knows what you are facing right now. Jesus has been there before. He knows every difficulty, every dark day that you're going through. We're called to remember what God has done before in our lives. The tests and the trials and the storms we've been in before. Remember how God has prepared and led you through. Or maybe you're right in the midst of it now. And you need to see that basket of leftovers at your feet to be reminded that God is indeed there. And if God was preparing his first disciples then, what must he be preparing you and I in this moment. Friends, we all will encounter stormy seas. We all encounter challenges that we have to walk through. So what then can we do in the face of the storms that are before us? I think it's very clear from this sign that we need to remember who Jesus is and what he has done before. Sometimes when I'm out of the moment of pressure, and you have that moment to kind of think clearly, you you can think back at the ways that God has been faithful. I do think that there are times we're in the boat and we're going to freak out. Don't get me wrong. And then Christ comes and saves us and gives us that space to say, oh yeah, Lord, I remember now. The last thing Jesus had told his disciples was to get in the boat that he would meet up with them on the other side and they listened to him. For you, what is the last thing you remember Jesus communicating to you? What's the last thing that he has spoken to you directly? And if you know what that is, then believe it. Stay the course. See it through to completion, my friends. For the disciples, they had that recent reminder. They got to actually experience that feeding miracle personally. They had that basket of leftovers as a reminder for them, a reminder that God had provided everything, more than enough that we said last week. How has Jesus already provided for you? And when you remember... then you can see the provision as evidence that he is in control. That God actually is in control when you feel out of control. Allow those memories, those remembrances to help fix your eyes upon him and renew your strength for today and brighten your hope for tomorrow. If you are able to receive anything from the Lord this morning, then I want you to hear Jesus speaking to you today. I will be right there with you, no matter what happens or how impossible the situation may seem. How do we know that this is true? Because the one who, is, who has called you is faithful to follow through, to see it through. He's never inconsistent. He's always faithful. I think that that's why Jesus' final words at the very end to his disciples were that promise to never leave them or forsake them. He knew that as He went back to heaven, that they needed to hold on to that reality, that his presence actually was still with them, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But on that night in the lake, as they were straining at the oars, they probably felt that Jesus was far away until he showed up and said, It's me. I am. Don't be afraid. This is what Jesus does, my friends. He sees you too. He prays on your behalf, interceding for you even now in heaven. And as you call out to him in your hour of need, your moment of trial, the storm that you are in, he will reveal himself to you through his presence. When we are afraid, he reminds us, it's me. You don't have to be afraid. For Jesus is the one who saves us, who removes our fear and helps us to respond in faith as he develops us, as he makes us. New. This is the power of these signs. Signs and wonders, as they're often called. May God give you faith to believe. Let's pray. Father, we don't like storms. We often like, we would prefer calm and peace. And yet we also know that there are times where we need to learn where there's something that you have to show us. Each of us here this morning is perhaps in a different place in our life. And the circumstances of the storms, the situations that we find ourselves in, they're not all the same. But in this moment, they are opportunities for us to turn our eyes once again to you to be reminded of how you have cared for us in the past and how you are with us right now. God, thank you for the gift of your presence. And it may be that you are calling us to continue on in the storm. And your reminder to us is that you are with us every step of the way. Whatever the case may be, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and a faith that is strengthened in these moments. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.